Our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sapper, the world's leading augmented reality platform and creative studio. With over 11 years of experience working with the world's biggest brands through Zapper Creative Studio. Zapper also has an award-winning web AR platform, Zapworks, that lets you create your own mobile AR magic. Finally, check out their Zap Box, the most affordable mixed reality headset on the planet. Start creating AR over at zap.works or talk to them about your next AR project at zapper.com. Good morning, everybody. It's November 11th, 2022. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Chilowitz and Roni Abovitz for This hey. Week in XR. Roni, you are no longer our guest. We're now a we're now a triad. We are we are growing. Our our empire is growing. We're we're definitely. I'm the Neil Young add-on. I'm the Neil Young. You're the Neil Young of our Crosby, Stills, and Nash. That's right. You love that. All of us that are old enough to have that reference. People are going to say, "Who is that?" Right. Right. So uh, I was at the Disney uh, uh, Accelerator demo day yesterday on the lot. Uh, I haven't been on the lot in 25 years. It was really like a weird deja vu, and it's not exactly the same. Uh, you know, they said landscaping is different. There's a couple of new buildings mixed in. Right. So it's just enough that you're kind of in a dream, and it's not exactly how you left it. Were there uh, any amazing new companies yes. that you didn't know about that you were like, wow, this is fantastic? There was one amazing company that I did know about. And in fact, I wrote a story this week. Uh, it's Red Six. Oh, yeah. Well, we're gonna Red talk Six. About that. Oh, oh yeah. my God. You're in an actual airplane with a fighter pilot. Right. And you're in your helmet's viewport. It's sort of like feels like a hacked HoloLens, but it, apparently it's a custom rig. So you've got the sliding uh, fighter pilot giant sunglass so to speak yep. and then you've got this heads up display that shows virtual adversaries and carrier landings and evasions of surface to air missiles and they did something for disney where you were on a roller coaster and you were seeing things and and you know playing a second having a secondary experience with that that used the motion of the roller coaster oh, amazing. all right charlie i have a couple of questions for you as you know i'm a fairly exotic flyer right i fly in fairly exotic yes. things but i have never flown in a fighter jet i've flown in helicopters a ton i've hung out of helicopters in the previous life but even for our listeners tell us the experience of what it was like to be in a fighter jet and of course everybody wants to know did you keep it down were you able to wait wait, wait charlie you were in a sim or you actually flew we actually flew. It's, we actually it, flew. This is the cool part. And it's, it's, it's a it's a Rutan Burkut five forty, which is a super ultralight plane with a rear propeller, so yeah. that you are looking forward without obstruction like a jet, and it goes really fast, like three hundred fifty miles an hour. Yeah, it's a it's a stunt plane basically, right? It's uh, a, it's and um, I mean, you shimmy in there like you're going to be launched into space. Right. You know, and guys are helping you and there are wires everywhere because it's, you know, these are not completely finished, you know, and they have to keep replacing things as they upgrade it. Right. So yeah. they're flying in and out of uh, Santa Monica Airport with these Air Force pilots all day long testing mm -hmm. things. Yeah. Uh, and so I was doing fine. I like to fly. Um, but, you know, and I like the carrier landing and the in-air refueling. We had virtual wingmen. It was all terrific. And then he said, well, do you want to do some missile evasion? Oh, no. <laughs> and he started having missiles coming up from the ground. And apparently what you do is you fly right at the missile in a dive, because once the missile turns after you diving, 
it's it's like, gonna go gotcha. to the ground right yeah yeah uh and so you know we were it was like four g's and that's like double like quadruple your weight like yeah. at four g's you cannot lift your hands so that's Amazing. what that's what did me in that's what the minute i could lift my hands i found that bag and uh I, fortunately i did not eat lunch but i did drink a lot of liquid <laughs> so a lot of fluid excess <laughs> so and so i jennifer strong from mit uh, technology review was also going up right after me so i got in touch with her on linkedin later and so i oh, said yeah. you know it felt a little unmanly you know <laughs> and so i mean apparently everybody gets sick and she said well <laughs> How do you think I felt? Wow. <laughs> she said, wasn't exactly the most feminine moment in her life. <laughs> so but you had a top gun experience, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it was a once in a lifetime thing. And that's why I did it. At first I said no, because I get kind of motion sick in, in things like um, Echo Arena. So I thought if I get motion sick in Echo Arena, what's going to happen if I'm flying in a fighter jet? Hmm. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, but it was still worth it. I loved it. The technology is mind blowing. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, they're- How were the um, graphics? Were they like high res? They were, were they great. solid? They, they were great. Remember the graphic demand when you're in a jet going 400 miles an hour and the other jets are going 400 miles an hour is not that high. Right. And even the jets next to you and the giant tanker, um, you know, they look real enough. And when you land on the carrier, there's some, you know, you see the numbers on the ship and you feel, it feels real enough. Uh, so, you know, the graphics are not crude. Let me like put it Microsoft that way. Flight simulator quality? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And and in the Disney demo, they were showing ways that it could be incorporated with Star Wars and, you know, you could fly a X-Wing. An X-Wing fighter. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's exactly what you would think it is and it's really good. So I think Red Six, somebody, Microsoft should buy Red Six to save their military contract. Yeah, or just plug it into uh, the Microsoft Flight Simulator, which is the biggest, yeah. you know, yeah. most robust flight simulator on the planet. So, exactly. Yeah. So not a, not a huge Newsweek, gents. Um, okay. of, of course, uh, the headline was Meta laying off 13% um, of its workforce or 11,000 yeah. people. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been through a lot of rifts. Uh, and and it is tough. It's tough. It's tough for the survivors. It's terrible, terrible for the people who have to leave. Uh, you know, one finally got me at AOL after the Netscape acquisition. Um, I was in an enviable position because it was one of those, you know, think, take this bag of money and get the fuck out of here. So, <laughs> so it wasn't exactly painful, right? Because uh, I could slink off and uh, count my money. The um, but for most people, it's going to be pretty terrible experience. They're entering a rough economy. I don't know whether I would call it a recession yet or if there really will be or what kind of a recession. But I don't think there are a lot of companies that are going to do a lot of hiring over the next few months. So it's, it's well, bad. And, you know, this time of year starts to be a bad time of year to be looking. Yeah. And, you know, for, for those of us that have been around long enough to watch the waves of technology and the, the retraction points, right? Like, we're we the three of us have been around long enough to remember the arc of SGI, the arc of Sun Micro, the arc of Compact, the arc of all these different companies that felt like you know, um, uh, remember a Gateway, you know the the cow computers that were like high flyers, and then you know they they arc over right. Um, so these companies, I mean, when we're talking about. And we, we probably at some point have to talk about our friends at Twitter and, and what's going on there. But Twitter, I, I, so insane. Apps. It would be the whole show. 
Yeah, that's true. Twitter <laughs> with mass layoffs. But I do have one thesis I have to bring back, I have to bring out. Uh, Twitter with mass layoffs. Facebook meta with mass layoffs. This is the first time in that cultural history of these companies, right, in their whole arc, that they've ever had a moment where they have to actually really step back and assess. So it's interesting to see how their leaders position that and message that. It's interesting. I have a lot of friends at Meta, right? It's interesting to talk to them now when they're feeling this kind of unease that they've yeah, never- Yeah, I mean, I wonder felt. what percentage of that came from uh, Reality Labs and what percentage was- From know, what I understand- Legacy brands. From what I understand, Zuckerberg's vision and what's happening with Reality Labs, he is holding tight to. He believes in that and he, that, that the least amount of the layoffs come from that area. Most of it come from- business dev, marketing dev, existing mature product areas where they just were sort of overstaffed for a constricting market. Um, and that's, you know, it's just, obviously it's unfortunate for a lot of people, but, you know, these are really talented people that will find their way. And in some ways it'll work out better for them. So. I don't know. Look, I mean, the, I think they've lost 700 billion plus in market cap. And I yeah. think like Wall Street, like I, I, I had to, I've piloted through a couple of these and they're very, very rough and it sucks. Um, I think the turbulence of spring of 2020, the pandemic and the economy crashing was horrible. And this happened to a lot of companies. Yeah. Then there yeah. was like this, I, I almost think like a weird false recovery. There was like this exuberance in the middle of the pandemic and, and, and everything seemed to be oddly okay again. But I, I had the funny feeling it really wasn't. And I think now you're seeing like the real blowback from what started in 2020. Yeah. Which is like, I, I just think the investor community has shifted from like vision belief, uh, the, the kind of optimistic belief in the future. And I'm just seeing this everywhere with almost every startup I talk to, almost every tech company. Um, you know, maybe there's some, some exceptions, but investors are, are like getting very hardcore about the well, idea. You do not want to, unless you're, a, unless you're a game company, you do not want to be an XR company out there raising money right now. That's true. Hard. Yeah. By the All way, right. speaking of game companies, Reggie Philemy, the former CEO of Nintendo, um, is uh, is in our green room. Uh, he's going to join us in a few minutes. I just read his book, and you know he was responsible for the Wii and the Switch, which are both arguably kind of XR products. Certainly, the Wii was. Yeah, and you know I love the way that you know it it you know, leverage new technology like gyroscopes and, you know, had people incorporating their bodies into the games is very innovative and smart. So we'll look forward to talking to him in a few minutes. Let me quickly see if there's any other news we should really get excited about. Oh, uh, Anything World. Have you ever heard of Anything World? Yep. Uh, they make 3D animation out of 2D characters and they do automatic rigging and apparently you can control them with your voice. I did not see a demo of that, but I guess it's sort of like spaceship blast off and turn right or something. Yeah. Uh, so there was a demo of a company called InWorld at the Disney Accelerator, and it was a similar thing where you could like be a ca create characters, give them attributes, you know, all the things that we did in role playing Gator. games. Yeah. John Gata, he's still yes. from the Matrix. He's in that company. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw a demo at AWE where there was a non-player character using, you know, their personality generator, and it was unconvincing. 
Yeah, so pretty early stage, right? But, 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 but at the Disney Accelerator, they were doing three CPO and it was- Oh, it was convincing? Yeah, because- It was really convincing because he's a robot. Right, right, right. So (laughs) So yeah, yeah, that's great. It it was amazing. Uh, So listen, let's let's bring Reggie in because this should be a great conversation. Yeah. And Charlie, just while we're waiting, do you need to um, do your sponsor blurb thing, or do you? No, no, it's that, that it's pre-recorded. No, the, you the, did the, it last the, week, but you didn't need to. But it was very sweet. And I'm no, sure I, was just, I was just remembering. We got to make sure we get it right. Yeah. No, no, it's done for us. So okay, good. Anything we mention, Reggie, Charlie, how are you? Good. Welcome to this week in XR. I don't know if you know my co-host Roni Abovitz the uh, founder of Magic Leap and the CEO of Sun and Thunder and Ted Shilowitz, who is the head of future technologies at Paramount Global. Right. Nice to meet you both. We are big fans of what you have done, your trajectory. And yeah, there's your book. So disrupting the game. I just finished it. I have so many things uh, that we want to talk to you about. Uh, So thanks thanks again for joining us. Absolutely. Well, one of the things I'll start with is in in presentations that I've given around the world for years, I make extraordinarily strong reference to the Nintendo Wii as the beginnings of virtual reality at the home at scale, because it is not a video game. It is a simulation experience that Mm. you do in your home. You didn't play a video game with grandma. You let grandma bowl in your living room. You played tennis in your living room. You boxed in your living room. And one of the key understandings is how we knew this was the beginnings of virtual reality simulations is at the beginnings of the Nintendo Wii, you know the story well, there was no protective plastic rubber layer on the controllers and people would get so into their simulation of playing tennis or bowling that they would literally hurl the remote into their TV and break their TV <laughs> uh, to the point where finally Nintendo was like, we got to fix this problem. Well, That's it was, the beginnings of virtual reality. It, it was that there was not only no protective covering on the Wii remote itself, but when we also first launched, there was no strap. Right. right. So no that strap. it was, as you say, people were getting into the experience so much that uh, that unfortunately they were damaging their TVs, other parts of their homes. Um, but it was uh, it was it was a great example of how you could create immersive experiences and doing it with tech that really wasn't all of that complicated. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, you know, I don't know how you felt about re- writing a book. I've written three books and I hate writing a book. I really hate it. I hate every minute of it. I hate the research. I hate the rewriting. But what I love is having written a book. Well, I- what I what I love is the reaction that I'm getting from people who have read the book. You know, I, I don't know for you, Charlie, but for me, this was a bit of a serendipitous experience. I, I was uh, introduced to the thought of writing the book by a, a dear friend and business associate. I poo-pooed the idea for a few months and then began the exploration process to figure out if I wanted to write a book and how I would go about doing it. And I have to say the only positive thing that I experienced from our COVID nightmare was that I was able to wake up every morning and write or edit for about four hours a day, 
because I wasn't traveling. You know, I wasn't having to uh, to physically be somewhere for a board meeting. I could do it uh, this way through a through a Zoom experience. Um, and uh, you know, for me, that that opportunity is what enabled me to write the book over the course of about eighteen months. So, was it during the pandemic that you wrote it, or? It was during the pandemic. I, I I literally started on the journey of the book in late 2019. Uh, began writing in earnest mid 2020, as we were you know beginning uh, beginning the the issues with the pandemic. Maybe we should back up a step because Charlie and I tend to do this. We go to like third base before we get to first base. You should probably <laughs> tell our listeners who you are, a little bit about your background, your trajectory the kind of interesting and amazing things you've done. Give us the little encapsulated version so then we can ask you some questions. Sure. And so, you know, I, I am a, I'm a 40 plus year business executive, best known as the president and chief operating officer for Nintendo of America. It was a, a face for global Nintendo for the 16 years that I was with the company. And it was during my tenure that we launched groundbreaking products like the Nintendo DS, which uh, you know really pushed the boundaries of what a handheld uh, gaming device could do. Uh, launched the Wii, launched the Nintendo 3DS, which introduced AR at scale uh, at the time. You know, and also had some uh, some business challenges out there in the marketplace. I was there for the launch of the Wii U. Right. Uh, which was a very challenging launch, but it all of the learning of that device led us to the Nintendo Switch, which is now uh, on its way to being Nintendo's best-selling uh, system of all time. It's already its best-selling console. Before that, I was a business executive in consumer packaged goods, uh, in the entertainment industry, in the restaurant industry, uh, spent a little bit of time in private equity. Uh, so that, that's, my, uh, that's my professional journey. I also think it's so interesting about the Wii, and you probably know about this, that there's this whole kind of retro movement about the Wii, especially in Asia, where in these like little karaoke bars, these little lounges, people go to play original Wii and they'll spend hours in these social environments playing those original Wii sports games and love it. And so it's not about the graphics. It's not about the latest technology. It's just about this magical moment in time where that type of gaming flourished and people like to go back to that. And even like young kids that never had a Wii in their home, it was way past their arc of life are going to these bars and experiencing the Wii. And, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing to me. I, I think the, the social element of that device, uh, you know, cannot be, uh, cannot be uh, minimized, you know, the ability, yeah. the ability yeah. to play with others, you know, four people playing together, having a great experience, you know, really was a key compelling part of what made that system so great. Was there an issue with the Wii? Uh, first of all, I mean, why do you think it, it faded from interest because of the com competition from other devices or people fickle? I mean, why, you know, since we're, we're extolling its virtues, I wonder what is the perspective uh, uh, on its decline or replacement? I don't know what you would say. Well, you know, look, the, the gaming industry is a cyclical business, meaning you launch a new system, you support it with great content, uh, you begin working on the next system that will uh, overtake the one that you've just launched. And, you know, that's that was the business process dating back to you know, the, the 1980s. 
And so from a Nintendo perspective, you know, the company started working on its next system. So there were fewer and fewer games from a, at what's called a first party perspective, a Nintendo published perspective to support the platform. And, you know, let, let's not forget the, the Wii sold, you know, o- over a hundred million devices, Damn, uh, almost number. 925 million pieces of software, paid software. So the, the device had a very long life, a very successful life. You know, one of the things that I would argue, I, I think the device could have sold even more if we were able to bring that device to a magical consumer price point at the time of $99. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you recall the trajectory that the PlayStation 2 product had, you know, when they hit that magic $99 price point, you know, they sold another you know, 15 million devices. And I'm confident that if the Wii could have gotten to that point, you know, the, the system could have sold another 20, 25 million devices. It was difficult to get there because the remote, which was a key part of the, the proposition, uh, you know, was an expensive device, much more expensive than a traditional remote for a game system. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's really just the nature of the industry of that time. This is changing, right? The, you know, current manufacturers are looking to prolong the life of their systems a variety of different ways. Uh, we weren't able to do that at the time with the Wii. Ronnie, I want to let you ask. I have another question, but I want to let you ask something too. Reggie, I have a question about the Wii and then I have later on the Switch. But with the Wii, why didn't, why didn't you guys stay the course and continue to evolve it? Because... You know, when that came out, it, it did open up the idea of like sort of, I, I think of it as a spatial computing uh, device more than AR or VR. It's like it's, you're, you're computing in space, you're tracking things. And if you imagine like just staying that course from then through now, uh, you might have dominated like AR or VR gaming on some level because you sort of had the audience. You could have just brought them along. What what? But, you know, then the movement to the switch was a whole nother thing as, as a second question, but like, why, why wasn't the core stayed uh, and continued to refine it the way Apple does iPhone, you know, four, five, six, seven, you know, like we one, two, three, four, five, we'd probably be at the Wii seven right now or something. <laughs> what, what was the thinking there? So Nintendo's philosophy is that they want to make large jumps, uh, whether it's in the, the game playing capability, the technology, the company is constantly trying to differentiate in a way to take significant leaps forward. And you could see that from you know, the, the prior generation to the Wii, the, the GameCube, to what the company was trying to do with the Wii with, uh, with motion-controlled gaming. And so the concept of simply you know, putting uh, high-definition visuals, maybe making the spatial tracking just a little bit better, those types of incremental moves uh, historically have just not been very interesting for Nintendo. They they rather differentiate in large, significant ways, which is what has made the the company so effective um, as you look through its history. Now, again, it it also leads to potential risks that don't work out. And whether you talk about the Virtual Boy or whether you talk about the Wii U, but that's the philosophy of the company, more big changes versus small incremental changes. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, Ronnie, when you were asking that question, because I was trying to remember the, the arc of the timeline of when the Virtual Boy was introduced. Was it, it was before it was the like, Wii? 
it's like 2000. Uh, it, it was uh, it, it was in the 1990s. Yeah. And, and the, the interesting history is that, you know, this is as Nintendo was thinking through how to get real, quote unquote, 3D gaming out into the marketplace. And they had two different approaches that they were considering. One was Virtual Boy. So essentially a, a you know, early VR uh, type of experience or 3D graphics delivered through a more traditional gaming system, which is what became the Nintendo 64. Right. Um, but the, the company was exploring both of those different, uh, different approaches. And in the end, you know, you look back at the, the Virtual Boy, the tech was pretty crude, the experience is not all that compelling. Um, and, you know, it was a dismal fa failure. You know, I, I don't think anyone really knows exactly how few devices were sold, but certainly it was less than 10,000 uh, devices globally. Um, and so a, a pretty massive disaster. Yeah, they're very collectible items. So for, for all of our listeners that don't know a reference point of this, just Google Virtual Boy, you'll see what it looks like. They're out, they're out there. People have them, you know, in their collections. Um, but when you talk about the foresight, right, the awareness that this type of experience would actually be somewhat valuable. And if you look at the arc of today with, you know, the, the quest and where it goes, a lot of that is the essence of what the Virtual Boy was attempting to do way before it was possible, which really sort of ties into your arc with Magic Leap, right? I mean, the idea of what you were trying to bring forth and what, you, what continues to be worked on when you go that far ahead of the curve and you're pushing the envelope that much, but the foresight is there, right? So it's an interesting sort of parallel, I think, that it's fascinating to me. Reggie, just a little bit on that. Like I, I found it very, when I was like starting a Magic Leap, I think the Switch was coming out. And we were all curious and, and scratching heads like, this is really interesting, right? Like there's PlayStation and Xbox getting super beefed up with high-end graphics chips. And then you do so, like a very unexpected move, which is like this sort of very cool design, completely different than anyone's thinking about, wasn't about overpowering the graphics. And it turned out, you know, and then the iPhone and Android phones are, are in the billions. And you're like, how are you going to compete against that? Yet the Switch was super successful and built a cult. I'd love to understand some of the thinking there because that it's like one of those classic, like great product moves that on paper may not make sense against the competition you were brewing and yet it worked and there's like this cult of nintendo fans and we, we have one at home and it is a great device and it's kind of like how how on earth did you pull that off i thought that was just incredible so yeah i, I again i think it's important to understand so the, the company went from this massive success that was the wii launched a, uh, launched a device called the wii u and you know this was a device where the key innovation was this gamepad controller. So a controller with a screen and buttons that connected wirelessly to the main console that enabled you to have a variety of different types of experiences. You, you could play a game on your big screen TV using the gamepad as your controller. Maybe it would give you information on your item inventory or your health, uh, or there were other game experiences where the person who was playing with the gamepad had a, a differentiated experience than others who were playing with them on the couch. Um, or you could move the game from the screen to the, your big screen to the screen on the device itself 
the only challenge there is that you needed to be about 30 feet in proximity to the home console. Otherwise, the wireless connection would be lost. Yeah. So the Wii U did not do well in the marketplace. Sold 13 million devices, second worst performance in Nintendo's history, second only to the Virtual Boy. But what the company learned was that this proposition of playing on a big screen TV and also being able to play on something small in your hands was really compelling to the player. Uh, also this thought of, you know, we all love our games. We love the immersive nature. And the, the worst time when you're playing a game is when you have to stop and leave the device behind, right? And so that all informed this, this decision to pursue a hybrid device, a device that could display you know, great graphic fidelity on your big screen TV, but also could be undocked and you could play on the go. Uh, that coupled with the technology that was embedded in the, uh, the remotes, the, the controllers that came with the device, as you say, you know, it was a completely differentiated experience versus what the competition was doing. And it was something that really spoke to the player that they could always be gaming, whether it's gaming at home, gaming on the go with a great experience, you know, and the same content that they're, con they're continuing to push along. Because again, if you recall back in, in 2017 or so, you know, the experiences that you were playing on your mobile phone were very different than what you were playing on your home console. Uh, and you weren't yet at a point where you could be playing essentially the same experience progressing on a mobile device and then reconnect to your home console and, and essentially pick up from there. Right, but, then, but think about the arc, right? Again, the foresight of what now we broadly call the second screen experience, which has become this multi-billion dollar industry across all these different verticals. And that understanding super early on, even way before the technology was mature enough to really exercise it, that some people there had this vision of the future. It's, it's quite fascinating. I think we don't give Nintendo enough credit for the level of foresight that they've always had. It's fast, to me, it's fascinating. It's a great story. It, it really is. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a great Nintendo story. It really, uh, across innovators in so many different industries, the, the ability to, to think through future capabilities from a technology standpoint, future consumer needs, and to begin those experiments early, sometimes even before the technology is currently established. I mean, that is truly the, the, uh, the arc of disruptive innovation. Reggie, I got to ask one quick thing. Were, were you there for the the Nintendo Mario Kart with Universal in Japan? Was it, was that part of what you were doing? The friends of mine built that, and I thought that it came out apparently incredibly well. Yeah, you're talking about the AR version with the AR headset. Yeah, yeah, the AR one where you can play like it's, it's Mario Kart. It's a theme park ride at Universal. Yeah, it's very cool. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I I was there at the very beginning. Uh, I I brokered the the first meeting between the senior executives at Comcast, some of their strategic uh, leaders and leaders from Universal Studios with uh, Satoru Wada, the, the global president at the time. Uh, we, we had that very first meeting, really just talking about culture uh, of the different businesses, you know, the types of companies that Nintendo likes to partner with, what Nintendo strategically was trying to do, which was essentially to deliver a variety of different experiences leveraging its core IP. So whether it would be a movie, 
uh, which also came out of that very first meeting or Universal Studios or the, the games or, or mobile experiences. Essentially, it was to meet the consumer where they are with uh, the great Nintendo IP that the company has. I, I retired before the experiences at Universal Studios were launched, uh, but certainly I was there as we were working through all the strategies and, and all of the early thinking for how to bring it to life. So Reggie, have you spent any time with the Oculus Quest? We spend a lot of time here talking about VR. I'm interested in your perspective on uh, how that's going and the metaverse thing, because you know the cross-platform play that we're, we're talking about, the 3D virtual worlds, I mean, all of these are being referred to as the metaverse. And of course, games are fundamentally Web3 products, as I understand Web3. So uh, your perspective, I would imagine, is as insightful as what you've shared about the game industry. Well, sure. So, you know, let's let's break this down into it, its parts. Um, you know, I've I've had just about every VR and AR experience. Um, I, I don't have the, the latest um, uh, Meta device. Uh, yeah, I, I think their price point from a general consumer standpoint is is a bit high. Um, but you know, I've I've experienced all of these, and I, I'm I'm a huge proponent of AR. I think AR uh, and the experience through a, a, a lighter lens, uh, a device that doesn't completely separate you from you know, friends and family that you can share the experience uh, a bit more effectively. I find those types of experiences to be extremely compelling. Um, you know, I, I think the, the VR market is still in search of its killer application. You know, I'm, I, I'm a believer that people buy into hardware technology in order to have a great experience that they haven't had before. And, you know, I, I haven't yet personally experienced that VR gameplay, that VR immersive experience that just compels me to buy into the hardware and the overall proposition. Mm. It's going to come. I mean, I'm, I'm confident that there are great developers working on it, but I just haven't seen it yet. Well, here's an interesting perspective for, for you and for the people out there listening. Um, one of the experiments I did is I went back in time a while ago and found the very first launch video of the Nintendo Wii and married it against the first launch video of the Quest. If you take them and put them side by side and watch what it looks like, it's literally the same thing 25 years later. It's like you're seeing all the simulation-based behaviors of boxing, playing tennis, playing sports. It's a fascinating exercise to do it. Find the, just search for initial Wii launch video, initial Quest launch marketing video, Put them side by side and watch what happens. It's fascinating. Well, it's it's interesting you say that. I mean that 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 early Wii video is uh, is burned into my brain, so I know it well. Yep. Um, and you know, as you describe it, it really was people having these experiences in space, and we focused only on the people. I mean, that was the the visual that we showed. You know, we didn't show the screen in part because the games didn't exist yet uh, at that point. And so, you know, it's a, it's a very, uh, you'll see it. You'll, you'll have an interesting deja vu moment. And we would, we would argue that the closest thing to a Wii game in VR is the best selling VR game by far, this game called Beat Saber. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely a Wii game evolved. 
A hundred percent. You cannot get me to argue anything different. Also within, you know, what Chris Milk is doing with it's it's very supernatural. Similar. Yeah, yeah, it's very supernatural. It's basically it's the it's like we heightened. It's like if we kept going, you would have ended up with what what's absolutely within is doing with supernatural or beat saber. Absolutely. You know, in terms of uh, Web three, you know, I I uh, I do believe that there's interesting work being done with blockchain uh, type of technology. Um, you know, again, it's going to come down to the great experience that really shows how this technology adds value to the player and to the player experience. And there are a lot of people working on it. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how these first great experiences come out. Reggie, why do you think there's a, there's like a perception, I think there's also reality that a lot of game companies and gamers are sort of mass rejecting the idea of like NFT and crypto, uh, you know, the guys at Epic and many other, many other classic game companies are like, we don't want that right now or at all. Um, and a lot of the early attempts have been a bit like exploitative, but do you think this is like a moment in time or do you think there's a fundamental issue that like game companies and gamers will just continue to reject it. Yeah, I I think that it is moment in time. And I I believe that the current player rejection is this fear of uh, excessive monetization, exploitive monetization because they still you know they they remember the early days of mobile games and and the excessive monetization that happened with some of those experiences. And they're linking it to what NFT type experiences might be with Web3. And so that's why I say that there needs to be that experience that really shows how the, the technology adds value to the play that, uh, that doesn't turn off the player, whether it's from a monetization standpoint or experience standpoint. And once you see those experiences, I think there's going to be much more open-mindedness to it. Um, there are some great companies playing in this space. Uh, and I'm confident that there will be some wonderful examples that bring it to life for the player. And once that happens, there's gonna be much more acceptance. I think that's an extraordinarily insightful comment that you made about this sort of profit at all cost feeling that's happening with these types of game experiences. And this almost, it's not profit, it's profiteering. Um, it, it crosses these bizarre ethical lines of why are you actually doing this in the first place? And I think there is a backlash. I think you're recognizing that. I think it's very insightful. I, I think we should take that little moment, what you just said, and from the guy who started Nintendo, that is really extraordinarily meaningful in our business. Listen to that comment, because it's a very insightful comment. Ted, I want to ask Reggie a futurist question. So yeah, go for it. Imagine you're on this podcast, 2035. Mm. What's happened in tech and gaming that you were most excited about? You know, look, yeah, 15 plus years from now, I, I believe that the experiences, and, and this is just not gaming experiences, pure entertainment experiences are going to be more and more immersive. I believe that uh, they will be also more and more social in nature. I believe that as we make progress on um, machine learning, um, AI, the, the experiences will feel more real uh, in terms of what you're experiencing. And your personal play 
will be different than your neighbors, your spouses. You know, you will go through your own, you know, let me call it singular journey, but it, it is also going to be social in nature. You'll be able to share it with other people. Those are the, the vectors that I see that are going to continue. Um, and notice, you know, I don't, I don't say AR, I don't say VR. I, I don't know exactly what the tech is going to be. But I, I do believe that uh, the entertainment industry is absolutely going to lead in this space. And gaming as the dominant form is going to be the predominant experience. I do believe that uh, you know, computing power is going to be a bedrock under, uh, underlying all of this, uh, this capability. But narrative, uh, unique experiences, those are going to come to bear that I would argue have not yet come to bear to the same degree in gaming as in other experiences. So we're starting to reach the end of our time together, Reggie, and I want to talk about the book specifically. Um, you know, I, I had so much to do this week, but I made time for you. So I feel like we've spent a lot of time together uh, just because I found the book to be a very personal story. And, and, you know, there's all these sort of inserts that the editors made you put in the so what. Well, uh, so, so Charlie, the interesting story there, the, the so what's were completely my innovation and something I pushed the, the publisher on because, you know, the, the typical business memoir is two books loosely stitched together, right? You, you've got the person's journey in the first half of the book, and then the second half of the book are the little uh, anecdotes or lessons that they want you to take away. And I, I found that to be, uh, to, to, to not be a great reader or listener experience. I, I wanted to reinforce the meaning of each of the stories that I told with these so what uh, little, uh, little segments. And I fought for, uh, for their inclusion and as I've heard back from people who've enjoyed the book, they, they have told me that it's the most compelling part yeah. of the book uh, because it really brings the nature of the story home and it, it, it gives the, the reader or listener some practical advice. Yeah. I, I like the narrative of it. Um, you know, I just, I, I thought it was exciting. You know, I felt like, you know, my career was happening too while I was in the uh, words of the book. So uh, in the end, and this is going to be a question for everybody and a great place to wrap up. Um, you say, uh, after you left Nintendo, you created my vision statement to inspire and empower the next generation of leaders. So, um, you know, it's interesting because I've never sat down and thought about myself in that way. Like, what's your mission statement? You know, my, my mission statement was to be opportunistic and find something to do that I really love. So, you know, my mission statement is to continue doing that until I'm too old to do it. Um, so uh, talk to us about that mission statement. Is that sort of, you took your business experience and then you applied it to your personal life. I think that's so interesting. Well, it, it, that was a big part of it. Look, for, for me, I, I retired as a young man. Uh, I, I retired recognizing that I still had a lot to share. And certainly the book is a key part of, of sharing my story. The board service that I do is a key part of sharing my knowledge and my experiences, the activity that I do on college campuses, uh, the speeches I give, this is all part of my effort to take what I've learned, you know, the, the hard lessons uh, and to share them in ways that people can 
reapply them, whether you're a business executive, whether you're a student trying to figure out your own path, uh, you know, whatever your current place uh, on your journey, my hope is to share nuggets of information and experience that I've had and hopefully inspire you to do your best work, whatever that looks like. And so it really was uh, an exercise for me to think about what is it that I want to do, you know, for the you know the next 40, 50 years that I have on this on this earth, and how do I want to help others, uh, you know, in in pursuing their own journey. So, Roni, what is your mission plan? Your mission wow, this, is good. this is good. This is a good <laughs> podcast, Charlie. That, that's that's a trick. I don't know how to follow Reggie on that, but um, <laughs> it's true because Reggie's really thought about it, and I'm putting you and Ted on the spot. <laughs> I did um, uh, just uh, thirty seconds uh, when when Mako Surgical, my first company, was going public. Uh, around that time, I, I started a weird blog. I called it "Fix the World." And it's kind of hung around, and it's and, you know, like, I, I would call it a vague. It's a vague cool alum, right? Kuna alum. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like that's a good purpose uh, in anything I do next. And, and I think it was very true at Mako. Like we actually did fix and, you know, probably maybe close to a million patients at this point. Like we really did fix them. The Mako so like robot saved my life. I didn't know that when I met Roni. <laughs> and I called the surgeon. In my life, we are both robotic survivors. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. But I feel like Ted, the world is a, especially with what's going on in the world today. Oh, so hell yeah. Kind of oh, hell yeah. Ted, 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 before we go, you have to weigh in. Mine is very Even short. On the spot. Mine is very short. Put your helmet on and keep exploring and make sure you got enough oxygen in your, in your backpack. That's my vision statement. Oh God. This keep was exploring. a good show. This was a good show. Reggie, I learned something from your book, uh, which I highly recommend and uh, from chatting with you this morning. So Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank, uh, thank all of you. And enjoy the opportunity to spend some time. All right, everybody. Have a great weekend. That's thank our you. show.